All right. G'day, I'm Charles. Uh, it's great to have you with us, especially if this is one of your first times with us. Um, if this is your first time, or at least the first time in a little while, uh, I think you have chosen a great Sunday uh, to be with us, because today we're kicking off a new series in the book of Philippians, as we just read from. Uh, we've called it The Secret uh, Lessons in Contentment. Um, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but first, let me pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, it is wonderful to be gathered together as your people. Uh, we thank you, we praise you for your word uh, and that you make yourself known to us in it. As we come to hear you speak, we pray do a mighty work in us by your spirit. Uh, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means and the power to put it into practice by your spirit. Uh, Father, we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I just said, we're starting a new uh, series in a, the New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, now, we call it a book, but it's really a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in the ancient city of Philippi. It's in modern-day Greece. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring and unpacking this book in a series we've called The Secret. Uh, the reason we've called it the secret is actually because of something that Paul says in chapter 4 towards the end of the book. Uh, so have a look with me at what Paul says, chapter 4, 11 to 12. He says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Um, did you catch that? He has learned the secret of being content. Uh, that's why we've called this series The Secret, Lessons in Contentment. Um, God willing, if we can wrestle with this letter, if we can submit our lives to the Word of God, then God willing, we too might be able to learn the secret to being content in any and every situation. And at one level, it's pretty obvious that all of us want contentment. I mean, uh, we all want to be satisfied in life. Nobody wants to be discontent, dissatisfied with their life. But here's the funny thing about contentment. Um, our modern world is actually geared and in a sense designed to make us discontent. Uh, just think with me about advertising. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review, and it found that increased spending on advertising was actually uh, related to decreased well-being and happiness uh, in different nations. Uh, this is how the author put it. When you look at changes in national happiness each year and changes in ad spending that year or a few years earlier, and you hold other factors like GDP and unemployment constant, there is a link. This suggests that when advertisers pour money into a country, the result is diminished well-being for the people living there. Uh, and it's pretty easy to see why this is the case. The goal of advertising is to make you discontent with the life that you have and then to convince you that if you buy their product, um, it will give you a sense of happiness, joy, contentment. But not too much, because they want to sell you the next version of the product. Um, see, the marketer's worst nightmare is the person who is perfectly content. Um, why do I tell you this? Because the more immersed we are 
in our modern world with its constant stream of advertising, and that's more than just the um, few minutes break on the TV show, it's everything around us. The more immersed we are in that, I think the higher the risk that we're going to be discontent and unhappy in our lives. At least that's what the research suggests. Now, our world, it holds out the promise of contentment in one hand, but in the other it holds a dagger of discontentment. That's our world. And so let me ask you, are you happy? Are you content? Or do you feel like a mouse on a wheel, you know, always running but never arriving? Um, are you hungry? Maybe you've been disappointed uh, by this life, this world, and maybe you're hungry for something more. And if that's you, I want to say, come and sit. Come and learn the secret of contentment. But maybe you do feel, you know, a level of contentment and satisfaction with how your life is. Maybe things are good, work's good. Yeah, relationships are good. You're kicking goals. If that's you, it could be that you're here and you're thinking, I don't have all that much to learn. Um, I already have contentment. I'm, I'm pretty happy. So what do I have to learn here? If that's you, let me show you a little fascinating detail in what Paul says. And did you notice what he said? He said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He learnt the secret even when he was well fed, even in plenty. Can you see, even in abundance, there is still a lesson to be learned. Um, here's why. Contentment is independent of circumstances. Uh, it's possible to, possible to be the most wealthy, the most successful person on the planet and to be deeply discontent. Um, I'm sure we can think of people um, in our own lives for whom that's true. It's also possible to live in great hardship, to experience great suffering, and to experience a deep sense of contentment and satisfaction, which means that all of us have something to learn from the Apostle Paul when it comes to contentment. Uh, can you see contentment is independent of circumstances? Uh, this was especially true for the Apostle Paul. Uh, as he was writing this letter, he was writing it from prison. Um, he was in jail for the sake of the gospel. Um, you see this a few times throughout the letter. Uh, one example is chapter 113. He says, It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Uh, he is in prison. He's under guard because of the gospel. Uh, and prison is not a nice place to be in the first century. Uh, Paul, he would have lacked basic necessities, medical care, um, prisoners would often be shunned by family and friends due to social stigma. But more than that, I hope you can see how deeply frustrating this would have been for Paul. Like Paul is a man who is ambitious for the gospel. Um, he had traveled over much of the Roman Empire, evangelizing, planting churches. Um, he had an entrepreneurial spirit and here he is stuck in jail. Um, he can't do the kind of ministry he wants to do. And like, you know, he did actually just evangelize the whole palace guard while he was there. But I hope you can see how deeply frustrating this would have been. But even amidst all this hardship, all this persecution, Paul is incredibly joyful. 
He's incredibly joyful. Um, The theme of joy actually runs throughout the whole letter. It's really the big thing in this letter. Uh, Some scholars call Philippians the book of joy um, because of how central that theme is. Um, If you go through and look at all of Paul's writings, he talks about joy 44 times across all his letters. 16 of those are in the book of Philippians alone. The other 28 are spread across the other 12 books. So there's a lot of joy here. And joy and contentment are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, Joy is what you have when you are content in any and every situation. And here Paul is writing from prison, experiencing hardship and persecution, and yet his heart overflows with a deep sense of joy because he has learned the secret to contentment in any and every situation. So let me ask you, how much of your contentment is bound up in your circumstances? How much is your joy dependent upon having your ducks lined up? What do you do when the storm comes and you lose the things you love? Uh, Do you have an anchor, an anchor for your soul? The aim of this series is to give you an anchor. The 17th century Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he says this about contentment. I love this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly purposes in every condition. Christian contentment delights in and submits to God's good and wise purposes in every circumstance. But here's the question, how do you get it? How do you get contentment? Uh, Philosophers have been trying to answer that question for thousands of years. Aristotle once said that contentment was the most desirable of all good things. And what these ancient philosophers said was that if you want to be content, what you need to do is detach yourself from the things around you. In a sense, you need to invest less in the people, the things around you, so that you aren't as affected even when you lose it. Um, I think there's some similarities here to a Buddhist mentality. Actually, the Greek word for contentment literally means to be self-sufficient, to be dependent upon nothing and no one else. But according to Paul, Christian contentment is something radically different. Christian contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. We become more content not as we detach ourselves from the world around us, but as we increasingly attach ourselves and bind ourselves to Jesus Christ. We become content not as we become more independent, but as we become increasingly dependent upon him. Uh, You can see this in the verse that comes straight after the one about learning the secret. He says all this stuff, and then he says, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Uh, It is only in and through Jesus Christ that we can truly learn the secret to contentment. He is the secret. But, and this is important, Christian contentment is not magic. Uh, It's not as if you just flick a switch when you become a Christian, and all of a sudden you are perfectly content. That might be true for some people, but I think that can actually be quite a harmful idea 
to think that we should be perfectly content as soon as we become a Christian. Uh, Because that could leave us wondering, well, if I'm not perfectly content, am I really a Christian? Have a look at what Paul says. He says, I have learned to be content. He says, I have learned the secret. Contentment is something we actually need to learn. It's not something that just happens to you. It's a process of discipleship. Uh, Look at how Melissa Kruger puts it. She says, contentment is not the absence of struggling before the Lord. Contentment involves struggle. Contentment will not suddenly descend upon us. We must actively battle the lies of the world, the flesh and the devil in order to find peace in Christ alone. Uh, That's why we've called this series Lessons in Contentment. Because if we really do want to experience that same overflow of joy that Paul did, we actually need to learn to be content. And we need to submit ourselves to the Word of God to let Him speak into our lives. Uh, God willing, over the next seven weeks, God will do a mighty work in us as a people, growing in us a sweet, inward, a quiet and gracious contentment uh, that freely submits to delights in His will his purposes for our lives. Now, that's really all by way of introducing the series as a whole. With the rest of our time together today, what I want to do is briefly take us through the first lesson in contentment. Uh, It comes from the passage Tim read for us earlier. It's the lesson of thankfulness. Thankfulness. Uh, In the first two verses of the book, uh, Paul gives us a pretty standard introduction. He introduces himself, he greets the Philippians. But then in verse 3, which is really where the book starts, um, the first word is literally, I thank. I thank. The very first thing he does is thank. It's thankfulness. Uh, So with the rest of our time together, we'll we'll do basically two things. First, we'll unpack why Paul was so thankful. And then second, we'll explore how you two can align yourself with this way of living. Uh, So why Paul was so thankful and how you can align yourself with this way of living. Uh, We'll pick it up from verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You can imagine Paul, um, he he sits in prison and each day he prays through a list of the churches he's invested in, the churches he cares about. Uh, Some of those churches he helped to plant. Other churches he's never even visited, but he cares about them. He prays for them. And you can imagine uh, imagine him praying for the Corinthians, the Colossians. He prays for the Galatians. But every time he gets to the Philippians, he simply wells up with thankfulness and joy. Uh, You can see it there. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy. Um, Is there something in in your life that you are simply thankful for? But notice where Paul's thankfulness is directed. He is thankful to God. He thanks God for them. Uh, Christian thankfulness is always directed, first and foremost, Godward. Is there something in your life that you are thankful for? Uh, The first mark of Christian contentment is a Godward thankfulness. Uh, Can you see how thankfulness actually leads to and expresses contentment? If you can actually 
thank God for something, it actually demonstrates a contentment with it. Um, and a Godward thankfulness actually leads to greater contentment. Um, just think about the opposite. A lack of thankfulness demonstrates a lack of contentment. So let me ask you, uh, when you pray, do you thank God? Uh, does your heart overflow in thankfulness like it did for Paul? Uh, do you simply ask, ask, ask? Uh, in your prayers this week, into the future, uh, why not begin your prayers by thanking God as Paul does, as a way of fostering, expressing a contentment in his purposes? But let's try and put a little more flesh on the bones of exactly why Paul was so thankful for these people. Um, I think we get the reason why in verse 5. So he says, I thank my God, um, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now the word partnership there, uh, it is not something detached and business-like. The Greek word there it actually expresses an intimate, personal warmth. Uh, it seems like Paul actually has a relationship with them that's gone back a long way. He says, from the first day until now. And so the question is, what kind of a relationship does he have with these people? Uh, the New Testament actually tells us quite a bit about Paul's relationship with these people. Uh, so over the next couple of minutes, let me take you through what we know of Paul's relationship with these people so that we can better appreciate why he's so thankful for them. Uh, the first place to start is actually back in Acts 16. That's where we read about when Paul and his companions first went to the city of Philippi. We're told Philippi, it was a Roman colony in the region of Macedonia. Uh, we see that Acts 16.12. It says, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. If you're wondering where Philippi is, uh, it is up in modern-day Greece. Uh, this was actually the first European city to ever receive the gospel. Uh, Philippi was quite a prominent city. Uh, we're told it was the leading city of that region of Macedonia. Uh, it would have made it a metropolitan Sydney. Think like a Sydney or a Melbourne. That's Philippi. Uh, and we're also told it's a Roman colony. Uh, so far in Acts, uh, Paul had mostly visited cities where there was a strong Jewish presence. Uh, and so you might remember that whenever Paul would enter a city, the first thing he would do would be to go to the local Jewish synagogue and start sharing the gospel with the local Jews in the area. But when he gets to Philippi, all he finds is a small Bible study of Jewish women. Um, they actually meet outside the city by the river. Uh, we receive this Acts 16.13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And what we're told is that the very first convert in Philippi was one of these women called Lydia. Uh, Lydia, she was a successful trader of purple goods. That would have made her a bit of a fashionista. Um, yeah, think, think like a Gucci, a Prada, something like that. That's Lydia. Every, every, every lady was wearing Lydia in the first century. Um, we're told the Lord opened her heart 
to receive the gospel. But pretty quickly, God throws a diverse bunch of people together in this newly formed church of Philippi. The second convert in Philippi was also a woman, but she was basically the total opposite of Lydia. Um, Lydia, she was confident, successful, professional. This second woman was impoverished, broken, and exploited. Uh, We're told she was a demon-possessed slave girl. She also has possibly the weirdest conversion story. Uh, Look at this story. Uh, Demon-possessed slave girl. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Um, I don't know how many of us can say we were converted because we were so annoying. Um, That's a testimony right there. Um, But I think there's a beautiful lesson for us here as a church, that God delights in throwing people together from all walks of life. That's a wonderful thing to have a successful businesswoman like Lydia uh, sitting with, doing life with, um, such a broken woman like uh, this young girl. Um, and it's, it's beautiful for both of them. Um, but as a result of all of this happening in Philippi, Paul and one of his companions, they actually ended up in jail because uh, they caused such a fuss. Uh, this is where we meet the third convert in Philippi. Um, I won't tell you the whole story, but the jailer who was meant to be guarding Paul, he actually became converted. And he's a Christian now too. And so together, these three converts and their families, they form the launch team. For the church in Philippi. Um, I remember back to the launch team for Grace City um, some seven, eight years ago now. Uh, some of us are still here. And I, I wonder if Paul is thinking back to these first converts in Philippi um, as he thanks God for these people. Um, he's writing what's probably 12 years on from these first converts. But Paul didn't stay long in Philippi. Um, he moved on pretty quickly. But what we're told is that the Philippian church actually started supporting Paul financially. Uh, uh, We're told um, the next place Paul went was Corinth. And we're told that while he was in Corinth, he was actually being financially supported by the church in Philippi. Um, So this is what he says in 2 Corinthians. uh, Paul's speaking to the Corinthians and he says, When I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. Remembering, of course, that Philippi was the leading city of Macedonia. Uh, The Philippians essentially paid his wage while he did ministry in another city. Um, In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul actually describes how these Philippians, they didn't just give what they were able, they actually gave beyond their ability. Uh, Paul says they had a rich generosity. But this rich generosity actually extended into the present for Paul. Uh, We actually know from some of the details of this book um, that right before writing this letter to the Philippians, he had actually received a very generous gift from the church in Philippi. Uh, It was delivered by a guy named Epaphroditus. Um, Have a look. uh, Chapter 4, 18. Paul says, I have received full payment And have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. 
They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, this is important context for understanding the book. Part of the reason why Paul wrote this book was to express his thankfulness, his appreciation for their crazy generosity, even while he's in prison, 12 years on. And I think this is part of what's going on when Paul says he is thankful to God for these people. But it's important to say he's not just thanking them for their money. He genuinely loves these people. He loves them dearly. Um, have a look at what he goes on to say in chapter 1. So he says, after, after thanking God for them, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Can you see how much he loves these people? And it's worth saying as well that Paul isn't really writing this book to address any major issues or problems in this church. Uh, many of Paul's letters, he wrote them because there were some big issues um, and he, he needed to deal with those. Uh, but not here. Uh, the church in Philippi, it wasn't perfect, no church is, um, but they were on a pathway towards maturity in Jesus. That's why he's so thankful for them. Every time he remembers them. Uh, they love Jesus, they're generous, and they're walking a pathway towards maturity in Jesus. Um, isn't that just a wonderful picture of a church? Um, isn't that kind of the, church, the kind of church we want to be? So that's why Paul was so thankful. But with the rest of our time today, I want to explore how you too can align yourself with this way of living. Because it could be that you're here and you're hungry. You're hungry for contentment. You're hungry to learn how to be thankful in your life, like Paul was, even as he sat in prison. I think we actually get a clue about how to do this in the final verses of our passage today. Um, I think it's verses 9 to 11. Paul says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. These verses really give us the guts of what Paul wants, what he prays for these people. Um, there's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to. The first is the language around knowledge and insight. Um, he says, he prays that their love would abound in knowledge and depth of insight so that they might be able to discern what is best. Notice that emphasis on knowledge and discernment. But he's speaking about far more than just Bible knowledge. Uh, notice that the result of this knowledge is an ability to discern what is best, uh, what is right, it's an ability to see the world clearly, to see the world God's way. I think he's talking about what we might be able to call a mental map. Uh, all of us have a mental map of how the world works. We have a mental picture of how things fit together, how this world works. And when it comes to certain issues, certain topics, um, we might have a pretty clear idea of how things fit together. Maybe it's things like marriage or work or whatever else. We've got a good understanding of what these things are, how they work, what they're for. And so you can imagine a map that has a really 
detailed, clear picture of the terrain. You know, here's uh, where the valleys are. Here's, here are where the mountains are. But when it comes to other issues, we might not have as much clarity or understanding. We aren't able to as quickly discern the best way forward. And so those parts of our mental map, they're far less detailed. Uh, you can imagine a map that just has a vague outline of a coastline, just shaded in. All of us have a mental map of the world, and we all take it with us each day as we try to navigate the ups and downs of life. And what Paul is praying for the Philippians is that they would grow in knowledge and insight so that they might be able to discern their way through life, so that they might be able to build up an increasingly detailed and an accurate picture of the world and how it works, that their map would correspond to God's map. And really, one of the key ways this happens is by immersing ourselves in God's word, uh, submitting ourselves to his word. Uh, so I want to add my encouragement. Take one of our daily reading guides. Um, take it. Use it each day. Uh, immerse yourself in God's word uh, to understand his world. Uh, build your mental map of the world. But the aim of this knowledge isn't simply to know more stuff about the world, how it works. The aim of this knowledge is to equip us to walk through life in a way that is pure and blameless. Um, you can see it in Paul's prayer. He says, do these things so that you may be able to, able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The aim of the, a map is not just to look pretty on a wall, but to enable you to traverse from one place to another both quickly and accurately. The aim of biblical knowledge and insight is to equip you to live in a way that is pure, blameless. He calls it the fruit of righteousness. And I think there's a connection here to learning the secret of contentment. Because the more we gain insight into and living, live according to God's purposes, the more content we will be. When we live in alignment with God's good design for this world, we'll experience contentment and satisfaction with those things, knowing how to use them rightly. Which is to say, if we're living out of alignment with God's purposes, the higher the risk, we'll experience frustration and that things won't work. Um, I see this all the time with my kids. If they don't know how to use something or understand what it's for, they get frustrated, they get bored, um, things get thrown. Um, it's the same for us when it comes to our Heavenly Father. Um, he's designed this world, He has made it to function a certain way. And if we can grow in our ability to discern what is best and to live that out in purity and blamelessness, then under God, we will be experience greater contentment, um, living in alignment with His purposes. But the end goal isn't really our personal joy and satisfaction. The end goal is the praise, the glory of God. Um, did you see that's how he ended his prayer? He prays that they would do these things to the praise, to the glory of God. But just as I finish, it's possible to hear all of this and to feel like it's all up to us, um, to feel uh, the weight of this. It's all up to us to grow in our knowledge, our ability to live out God's purposes. It's up to us to learn the secret of contentment. 
Um, what we need is not only a God who can speak wisdom to us, but a God who is at work in us. We need him at work in us. And I think we get a beautiful word of assurance in verse 6 of our passage. Uh, Paul, he says this. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Grace City, I want to urge you, learn the secret of contentment. Learn to be thankful, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. Grow in your knowledge of God's purposes. But do this in the knowledge that He is the one at work in you by His Spirit. And do this in the confidence that He'll bring it to completion. Um, Verse 2 of the book, the first thing he says, right before he thanks God for them, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, There is grace and peace to be found in God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust, will you depend upon that grace? Will you build your life upon it? Uh, Will you pray with me that this would be true of us? Heavenly Father, We thank you for the grace and peace that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. Teach us, we pray, Lord, teach us the secret of contentment. Give us that sweet, inward, quiet and gracious contentment that freely submits to delights in your purposes for our life, whether it's plenty or whether it's need. Father, teach us thankfulness. Give us insight into your purposes for this world. Father, we pray, do a mighty work in us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.